Good morning. Hope you're all well this morning. Name's Matt, one of the pastors here. Uh, Tom, our senior pastor and teaching pastor, will be back next Sunday. And uh, we are excited to jump into the fall with what we think is going to be really awesome. Uh, a little quick housekeeping before I, I uh, go forward. You might have seen up on the screen it said Wi-Fi password. I think I mentioned last week that um, our resources are available online and we have Wi-Fi in here. And I've started to see iPads pop up. And that's great. Um, I think I said that no one will know if you're playing a video game, but uh, we will not assume you're playing a video game. Uh, we will assume that you're using it for to, to take advantage of the resources that we try to provide. Uh, so that's the Wi-Fi password. A few people last week were elbowing each other going, what's the password? It's the church phone number. So uh, nothing too tricky about that. But also, I just wanted to show you, point out real quick, we have created a new, uh, new resource. You'll still have available to you the, the weekly study guide that you'll use in your community groups. But the thing you're going to get on Sunday morning... And the thing that'll be available on Saturday night before you come is a one-pager, two sides, okay? Uh, it's got a little uh, list of relevant scriptures. That doesn't necessarily mean we will go over every scripture in the service, but it's scriptures that inform what we're doing. Uh, it also has uh, the Wi-Fi password. It has a review of last week and then a little summary of what we're talking about this week. And then just some extra resources to do on your own, some other uh, things that maybe we studied in the development of the message that week that might be uh, informative to you. Um, this week, I threw on there a podcast from Tim Keller, a website that elaborates on a concept we're going to be talking about today. Uh, a video um, that I think might be interesting to you and, and some books that would also be informative. So what we're trying to do is help you take Sunday morning out of Sunday morning. You know, we get the advantage, and we forget this sometimes, we, uh, we get the advantage of getting to think about this stuff all week. And we get all excited, and our week sort of builds up with study and culminates in getting to preach the word and worship, and uh, we're all excited, and we forget that you're out there living life. <laughs> you're out there trying to get the kids to school and get your, take care of your job and do all these other things, and you don't have the advantage that we have of really getting to meditate on and ponder these things throughout the week. So what we're trying to do is, is make more tools available to you, along with your community group experience, uh, to get your head and your heart and your, and your mind in these things. Um, and your will, your head and your mind are kind of the same thing, um, to, get your, to get yourself into these things throughout the week. So that's kind of what we're trying to do with that, and, and this is a result of the survey that we did, some feedback we got. So hopefully that'll be useful to you. Uh, and also on the back is a little bit more room to take notes, and it's sort of in an outline form. Some of you guys had mentioned that. Uh, so um, that's available to you, and you're welcome to access that online during the service. All right, well, last week... Um, I have a confession to make. Last week, I changed my, my opening uh, in the second service. Um, I felt like I needed to paint a picture for you of exactly what we're talking about when we talk about God's Word and serving. And I told a story uh, of, of two little nuns that had started um, a leper colony, a leper village inside of a bigger village in, on the border of Haiti in the Dominican Republic. And in this village, the thing that I noted last week is that there was something striking about this as we went in to the village. First of all, we noticed that, that there was barbed wire pointing in. In other words, usually the barbed wire would be pointing out because you don't want people to get into your village, right? But in this case, it was pointing in to keep the lepers in. Because in this community, in this corrupted world we live in, the, the people of the community didn't understand leprosy, they didn't understand love, they didn't understand a lot of things, and so they wanted to make sure these lepers, who they believed were cursed by God, couldn't get out. 
But yeah, these two little ladies lived in there. I think they both had to be in their 80s. I mean, one of them looked like she might have dated Moses. And they were ancient, and they had started this leper colony in their 60s. They'd been there like 17 years. In their 60s or 70s, they started this leper colony. And what, and what was most striking to me was that when we went into the walls inside the leper colony, it was more beautiful than anything outside of the walls. Every leper we met had the effects of their leprosy, which, by the way, leprosy as it's understood today is actually a neurological disorder. Um, it is not uh, a skin disease, as it was sometimes referred to in Scripture, that, that you can transfer from one person to another. And a very brave, bold Christian doctor figured that out. But these, these little woman, women had led these people to Christ in this leper colony and then taught them how to live in perfect peace. So in other words, they illustrated what we're talking about in these two weeks. They illustrated with their lives and with their words what it means to serve God. God's word and serving is what it's all about. So last week we said that uniquely Christian service, healthy, biblical, uniquely Christian service has to start at its base as a response to who God is and what he's done for you personally. It's when you realize, we call it conversion. It's when you realize not only is there a God, not only is that God bigger than you and you're not that God, but you realize that that God is a person and that that person loved you and that person made a way for you to be restored to him through the sacrifice of his son. Christian service has to start there. If it starts anywhere else, it's, it's baseless and it's meandering and uh, it, it's counterproductive. So that's what we talked about last week. Um, this week, we're going to take a little bit of a practical view of what serving actually looks like and feels like. But to do that, we're going to kind of have to start at 10,000 feet. We're going to have to get way up here, and we're going to have to look down uh, on all of redemptive history. I promise that's not going to take as long as it sounds. Um, well, we need to look down at the big picture and, and how God made things and the way things ought to be as opposed to the way things are. We need to look at that for a minute. And then we're going to kind of focus in a little bit more. We're going to drop down and we're going to kind of take a bird's eye view when Jesus entered time and space to see how he engaged in the way things are and the way things ought to be and why Jesus didn't heal every single person and why he didn't feed every single person because he came to do something more specific, something bigger, something broader, something with eternal consequences. And once we see what Jesus came to do, then we're going to drop down from the bird's eye view and we're going to land right next to him. We're going to see how he did it. That's what we're going to look at today. How many of you have been to Mexico City? A few of you. Mexico City is vast, sprawling. I don't know how many. When I was there in in the 1980s, there were over 20 million people in Mexico City. And it's not like Manhattan where there's all these high-rises and 90% of the people live in the high-rises. It is literally just as far as the eye can see in every direction with a big city in the middle of it, house after house after house after house after house, just as far as you can see, going over hills and mountains and everything else. And it's just sort of chaos. It's like this organized chaos. One of the things I noticed about it is that cars, there's, it's, it's like a traffic jam 24-7. We were li- living in this little apartment building. I was with some students. We were there on a mission trip. And we were living in this apartment building, and there was no air conditioning. You had the windows open. So 
at night, usually, you know, you get a little respite from the noise, right? It gets quiet. Well, not in Mexico City. In Mexico City, it is sort of this organized chaos all the time. It's always traffic. It always smells like diesel fuel and everything else. And it's always loud. And, and I remember trying to fall asleep. And, and uh, there was that stoplight right in front of our place. So here's what would happen. It would, it, it, the people would be going, you know, nobody has a muffler. And uh, that would be great if anyone starts to, wants to start a muffler ministry to Mexico City. It would change their lives. So the cars are going by and it's loud, and then it would get quiet because what would happen? The light changed, right? So you just you'd start to drift off. And then it would change green. And it was all night long, this organized chaos. So one of the features of this particular mission trip is we were always there two weeks on these trips, is that we got pretty tired and pretty exhausted. And so when we're wandering through the city, uh, we're just kind of trying to make it survive. And, and there's just people everywhere, shoulder to shoulder. It's really an amazing, beautiful city, but it's just kind of chaos. And there's a lot wrong with it. When you start looking around, you just see a lot of, you know, you learn about its history and you learn how they would sacrifice people for their gods and all these kinds of things. And skin, it was, I won't even go into it, but you just start noticing there's a lot wrong. There's a lot of confusion and chaos and brokenness in this city. And, and I remember one day in the midst of our exhaustion, we were walking along and, uh, the streets all have just building after building side by side, you know, and we happened to notice that one of them looked like maybe a church. It, it kind of had stone on the front. And I think it had a little cross on the front. And, uh, and it, the doors were kind of open, so you could obviously go in. And we thought, man, it's hot. Let's just go in there and check it out and sit down. So, so here's what happens. We, we walk in. And we open the door. We walk in. And it is this vast, beautiful, spectacular cathedral. I mean, 40-foot, 50-foot ceiling. Stained glass everywhere, stone everywhere. And, and here's what happens. I'm with a bunch of high school kids, like 20 or 30 of them, and they're all, you know how high school kids are, right? We walk in, and without anyone saying a word, without any leaders chastising them or anything else, they just go. And they get totally quiet. And they all just start walking around, looking around, whispering, pointing at things. And the more we walk, and if there's a, somebody there that kind of started telling us a little bit about the cathedral, we find out it's been there for at least a hundred years, I think a lot more than that. And he starts pointing out things, and we start to notice that the stones on the floor are like mosaics. They have, they, they, they tell little stories, right? The stations of the cross etched in the floor. And then we, and then he shows us how, you know, the people couldn't speak, uh, couldn't, couldn't speak the language of the Bible, so that they, they told the story of the gospel in the stained glass. And he starts pointing us out, not only the beauty of this place, but the incredible symmetry and elegance and order and interdependency of all the elements of this. Well, to start at 10,000 feet, we have to start the way God started. We have to start with a concept that's pervasive in Scripture. It's, 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 it's summarized in a word that you've probably heard. The word is shalom. Can anybody tell me what shalom means on its face? Peace. It means peace. If you have Jewish friends, maybe they say shalom. Maybe that's a greeting that they use. Um, it means peace. But here's the thing. Shalom means so much more. Open up to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 31. It's on page 9 if you have a, an RSB, or a Reformation Study Bible. It's on page 9. And I want to go back just for a a second to the very beginning and the way things were. Okay, so if you know the story, you know that God has 
has committed his creative activity, right? He's been systematically, uh, very elegantly and beautifully by the power of his word, he's been creating the universe, okay? And what does it say after every day? There was evening and there was morning on this day. And, and what did he always declare? And it was good. It was good. It's beautiful. It's good. So then he gets to the end of the whole thing. He's created uh, the man, uh, he's created the, the people and everything else, and he's created all the animals. And then in verse 31, it sort of gives a little summary of his creation. And it says, and God saw everything that he had made. Now, we know God saw it. What does that mean? It means he stepped back and he, he looked at his creation. He meditated on it. He pondered it. Like an artist finishing a painting and then stepping back and looking at the big picture. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Then it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And then it goes on to say, he blessed the seventh day. And you notice what he doesn't say on the seventh day? It doesn't say, and there was morning and there was evening. Now, we don't know for sure that this is why that was, but we think that the reason for this is because the seventh day was the beginning of shalom, a day that would never end, a day that wasn't defined by the rising and setting of the sun, but it was defined by God's creative and perfect activity and this perfect interwoven tapestry that he had made where everybody was dependent on him and on each other. And and as they worked together, it was beautiful. And there was peace. And there was equality and justice and all those things we covet and we value. And whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're religious or not, you know inherently in you when something isn't right. And when you get to the point where you can't determine in your heart and mind at all the difference between right and wrong, we, we declare you insane. On the seventh day, commenced shalom. I want to give you a definition of it. It's important. Uh, If you can, write it down. Shalom. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. Let me say that again. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. Uh, Janine Brown, she's a professor at Bethel University. She describes it like this. A society characterized by shalom embraces the core values of peace, justice, and enjoyment of all relationships centered in relationship with God. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? A society characterized by shalom embraces the core values of peace, justice, and enjoyment of all relationships centered in relationship with God. Uh, Neil Plantinga, a, a philosopher, says this. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are faithfully and fruitfully employed, and all under the ark of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Does your life feel like that? Does the world feel like that? Does the news feel like that? 
do a few crazy people talk like that and hold up signs and we just drive by and dismiss them because it seems so ridiculous. It seems so preposterous, this vision for this perfect world. Uh, we forget that at one time it existed and that it will exist again and that all of human history is a little parenthesis. Even it for God's glory. But what I just described for you is the way things ought to be and the way things will be. But we know what happened, right? We're still up here at the 10,000-foot view. We know that Shalom was corrupted. We know that man decided to be God for himself. You remember the temptation? What did the devil tell the, the, the woman and the man? What was the, what was the temptation? It was basically that you can be God for yourself. You can know what God knows. You can know good and evil. Uh, he challenged them that they could self-determine, and they declared themselves God. And they broke that one command, which was symbolic of submitting to their own will instead of his. And there entered the corruption of Shalom. And, and it was like someone poked a little hole in a dam, and then the floodwaters rushed in everything that we can, we can imagine, the effects of sin. the brokenness of peace and justice and all these things. And, and from the very beginning, though, from the very beginning, what does God do when they sin? What's the first thing he does? He clothes them in their nakedness. It says they realized they were naked. They realized they were vulnerable. And the first thing God commits is an act of mercy. He clothes them. But then, because they've separated themselves from him, they're removed from the garden. But what we see after that, is the next thing that happens. First, we see shalom, the way things ought to be, but then we see the corruption of shalom, and we see God immediately unfolding his plan to do what? To restore it. So he comes in and he says, he, he curses this, the devil, he curses Satan. He says, I'm going to create an offspring from this woman. In a human sense, a baby's going to be born, but we know eternally that Christ is eternal. So Christ, the Son of God, it's going to become a man. I'm going to create this person. This person is going to crush the head of the one that tempted this one, right? So he starts right then. And then he creates a whole program. He gives rules and laws to explain what shalom looks like. He creates a, uh, he, he calls out a group of people, the Israelites, through Adam. And what does he tell Adam? I mean, I'm sorry, through Abraham. And what does he tell Abraham? He says, Abraham, your faith has been counted to you as righteousness, and I am going to bless who through you? Anybody know? Through you and through your offspring, through your descendants, I will bless the nations. The nations. Now, that was a very radical thing to say because back then there, you didn't bless the nations, you killed the nations and took their stuff. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy the nations. He didn't say, I'm going to make you a great nation and destroy the nations. He said, I'm going to restore shalom through you and all nations will be restored to me through you. And he created this program that in it had rules. And guess what a lot of those rules were about? They were about the way the rich treat the poor. The powerful treat the weak. The healthy treat the sick. Over 2,000 times in Scripture, God addresses poverty and the needy. And he paints this picture for them. He even gives them this incredible thing called Jubilee. 
Jubilee was the 50th year. After every seven years, it was like a Sabbath year. Every seven days, you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, right? Well, every seven years, the Israelites were supposed to rest for a year and let the poor glean from whatever grew in their fields. And they were all supposed to take care of each other for a year. But then, after seven annual Sabbaths, captives were to be set free. Land was, be to, was to be returned to its original owner. If you had sold yourself to someone uh, to pay off a debt, that debt was to be released. What was he describing? What was he trying to say? He was trying to say that in this broken world, separated and corrupted uh, from its shalom, there are inequities. And I want to give you a little picture once a week, once a year, and once every seven, uh, every, every, uh, seven blocks of years of how I think, of how I want the world to look once a week and once a year, once every seven years and seven times seven years, your world and your community is going to look like it should. That's what he says. So then, enter the prophets. You ever read the prophets? You know, when I was in seminary, uh, I took the prophet. We're in seminary, right? We're supposed to be men of God. And we're supposed to have gotten there. This is a master's level program. We're supposed to know the word, right? Well, our prophets class, this, there was this guy named Elmer Smick. He was our professor, and he was he was at least as ancient as the as the nun and the and the leper colony. And uh, he was very quiet. And he talked like this. And, but the very first thing he did is he said, "Take out a piece of paper, write down the names of the bo- books of the Old Testament in order." <laughs> And there's like 120 of us in there. And we're all like, where did we all get to really well? What do you think? We got all the way to the prophets. And then after that, all bets were off. And I think something like 95% of us uh, missed something, at least one thing in the prophets. Most of us totally messed them up, had them in the wrong order, were missing prophets. Well, you know, why is that? Um, I think that when we get to the prophets, they're just weird, man. They do weird stuff. You know what Jeremiah did? Jeremiah laid on one side next to a brick with Jerusalem carved on it for 390 days. And then he rolled over for another 40. And guess why? Because he said God told him to. He'd be an institution here. Jonah, God told Jonah to go to this Nineveh and, and preach, preach the word there. And they were going to, and he said, I'm going to save him. That made Jonah mad. He didn't want God to save him. He wanted justice. He wasn't about peace. He loved justice, but not peace. You know what that is? Pride. Okay. If you're all about justice, if you're all and only about the inequities in the world, guess what? You don't think there's any in you. If you're only about justice and not about peace, then you don't understand Jesus. If you're only about peace and not about justice, then you don't understand Jesus. You don't understand peace. You don't understand what's required for true peace. And you've never been in a battle for justice. You've never been in a battle for real peace. If you think it's just peace, don't worry about justice. So he doesn't want to do this because he's all about justice, but eventually he does because God does all this crazy stuff to him. He gets swallowed up by a fish. He gets spit out on the shore. Uh, he still, he preaches the word. And guess what happens? They do what God says, that all of Nineveh is converted. And he gets mad and he goes out in the desert to sulk. So God says, I'm going to teach him a lesson. And he grows a tree up over Jonah. 
in a, like in a day, which by the way, apparently there's really a plant that grows in a day like that and, and uh, over there. And, and so he grows up and, and Jonah's very happy because he's in the shade and then God makes a worm eat it and kill it the next day. And Jonah's all upset now. He's mad at God. And Jonah, and God says, you're mad about this plant. You didn't plant it. You didn't grow it. You didn't do anything with it and you didn't destroy it. And you feel like you're entitled to this plant and yet you don't care about all the thousands of people living in Nineveh. Jonah, weird story, man. Is that's one of the ones you kind of avoid with your friends because they're going to like, yeah, big fish, right? He got swallowed by a big fish, swam around for three days, got spit. You don't buy it, right? Well, I'm getting ready to read from a guy, and let me tell you about this guy. This guy walked around Jerusalem naked for three years. He really did, and guess why? If you asked him why, he would say, God told me to. Looney bin. Isaiah. Isaiah walked around Jerusalem naked for three years, and the message was, this is what you have done to God. This is how the world sees me, humiliated because of you. Sometimes in Scripture, you got to look past the weirdness to the message. Let me tell you what God was doing through the prophets. He was sounding an alarm. He was saying, something is really messed up among my people, not just in this world, but among my very people. And so I'm going to send some men to do some crazy things to get your attention. He told Hosea to marry a, to marry a prostitute. And so let me read to you from Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 58, flip over, and let's see what God was so upset about. Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 8. This is Isaiah speaking, the Lord speaking through him. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight and know my ways, as as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with wicked fist. Fasting like, your, uh, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call his fat uh, will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He's painting a picture f- of a very faithful people in a religious sense. What does he say? He says you've been faithful. You worship me all the time. You pray to me all the time. You fast all the time. You do all the ritual things you're supposed to do. Do I care about any of this, he says? He says, if this is all you do, then I don't hear you. Well, when do I hear you? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? It does not say, is it not to donate some money to the homeless shelter? It says, is it not your duty to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Your own flesh? Back then... Family was everything. They idolized family. They idolized family and they idolized race. And what he just said is, let me tell you what someone make, what makes someone your flesh and blood when they have need. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan and remember the punchline question at the end? Who's my neighbor? The one with need. Now let me point out something else he didn't say. He didn't say, give away everything you have, sell everything you own and give the money to the homeless shelter. Become homeless yourself. He didn't say that either. But he said, everything you have, you should hold with an open hand. And you should see the people that God puts in your life with need as partly your responsibility. That's what he says. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall... Now listen to this. This is beautiful. Does he leave no hope for them? Does he pound them into the dirt with guilt and shame? No. He says, you've been doing this religious stuff, but it's meaningless to me. He says, the blood of bulls and goats I do not desire. I desire a pure and contrite heart. But he says, if you do this, then here's what will happen. Verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Oh, my gosh. He just said, if you'll identify with the needy the way I identify with the needy, then I will be on your team. Quit praying to me. For me to bless your plans. You come and engage in my plans because they are already blessed. And if you do that, I will be your rear guard. Do you know what a rear guard is? It's the one who's got your back. It's the one who defends and protects you, who tells you who would, would harm you. It's the one who would die before he would let anyone through to you. I got news for you. There's a great contrast there between that God and the gods that everyone else believed in who lived for themselves. This God, who also lives for himself, does it in such a way that he has connected himself to you. And that's the last important thing you need to know about shalom. Shalom only works in community. Shalom only works in community. It only works when we don't just seek shalom in our own lives, in our own little circle, in our own family, or in in my own personal life. I find peace in my own life by ordering and arranging everything for me. No, shalom only happens when you're in a community and you're interwoven. You're woven together like this carpet that I'm standing on. It's a bunch of threads. You put them all together and it makes this beautiful tapestry. Think about Acts chapter 2 when he summarizes the activities of the church. He says what? No one had need. Why? Because they were communists and they all gave everything to the state and the state divided even? No, it says because those with gave to those without. They shared everything so that no one had need. They shared their possessions, rich and poor. They brought balance and equity, equality, voluntarily to each other. 
That's shalom. Waltke, Bruce Waltke says it like this, a righteous person, and he's, he's, he's defining the Hebrew word for righteousness and the Hebrew word for wickedness. I want you to think about this. Whenever you read the Old Testament, think about this definition. He says, when you study the Hebrew words for righteousness and wickedness, this is the prevailing definition that you find. In the Old Testament, a righteous person disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. A wicked person is the one who sees all his possessions as his own. Now think about that. It doesn't say a righteous person is the one who doesn't drink and doesn't smoke and doesn't cuss and doesn't steal and goes to church every Sunday. It doesn't say that. Now, are those parts of righteousness? Is that part of caring about your community? Yes, because part of shalom is caring about your own body. It's, it's caring about how what you do affects other people. It's worshiping your God as part of your, inter- your independence on him. But that's not how the whole Old Testament defines it. It says righteousness is very simply the one who disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. And wickedness is the one who hoards all his things at the expense of the community. Who did that? We did. Who was the most righteous? Jesus was. What did he do? Sacrificed himself for the sake of the community. What I'm painting for you is a picture of Christian service. That's what it looks like. All right. That's the big picture. Now we're going to come in closer. This is where Jesus comes in. God identifies with the needy. He does that by sending his son. But what is that? He even says it in Proverbs 17. He says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Now, we have all millions of definitions of poor. And in fact, the scripture talks about righteous poor and unrighteous poor. Okay, It talks about poor who are poor because they have consumed for themselves and, and not thought about the community um, or, or made bad decisions. And it talks about the righteous poor, the ones who beyond their circumstances are poor. But it doesn't distinguish most of the time. It says the poor, okay? Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Remember that if someone is financially poor because they made a bunch of bad decisions or were selfish, that's part of their poverty. And you're no better because God blessed you in such a way that you made the good decisions. That wasn't from you. It wasn't from you that you were born to a, uh, into a family or into a situation that allowed you to learn to make better decisions? No. You know, and even in Matthew 25, Jesus, who came into the world to restore shalom, that's why he came into the world, is to restore shalom. Jesus says, what does he do in Matthew 25? It's one of the most frustrating passages for uh, Reformed Christians. Salvation by grace through faith alone, Okay. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Well, Jesus comes along and he says, all right, at the end of the times, the son of man, that's me, he's going to come down and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He makes it very clear. He lays it out. He says, the sheep are going to be with me in heaven and the goats are going to burn in hell. How does he distinguish in that moment? When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. Peace, justice. Now, we understand, and Jesus made very clear throughout his life, that even those acts of kindness that he describes are motivated as fruit of your salvation and his work in your life. He's not saying you got to do those things to earn your salvation. He's saying, this is what salvation looks like. If you want to identify with God, identify with the poor. 
with the needy, with the hurting, whatever that means, whether it's financially poor, physically poor, spiritually poor, emotionally, psychologically poor, identify with them and you'll be identifying with me. Bono, I, I put this in your, your study guide. There is a video. I'm not endorsing Bono's political views or, or even saying whether or not he's a Christian, but I'm going to tell you, he said something very interesting at the National Prayer Breakfast. Here's what he said. God is with the vulnerable and the poor. God is in the slums and the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is in the silence of a mother who was, was infected, uh, who has infected her child with a virus that will end both of their lives. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of war. God is in the debris of wasted opportunities and lives. And God is with us if we are with them. I don't care who said it, that's good. So Jesus enters into the world. Why does he do that? To restore shalom. Flip over to uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you want one of these and can't afford it, go back and just get one. Or if you just want to borrow one, if you're visiting or whatever, we always have them in the, in the back. There's a place called the parlor, and there's a bunch of, uh, of copies of the translation we use. You're welcome to do that. Uh, Luke chapter 4. I want you to take a look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. All right, now, what's important about this is Jesus has come on the scene. He's been teaching in the temple, and there's a lot of buzz about him that he's a pretty amazing, interesting guy. But then he comes on, and he basically is challenged for evidence that he is the Messiah, because this is a big deal. It's one thing to be a great teacher. It's one thing to be a prophet. It's another thing to claim to be the Messiah. So here's the evidence that he gives. Starting at... uh, Verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, the town he grew up in. And as, and as his, uh, was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Guess what that is another phrase for? Jubilee. Jesus says, here's the proof that the Messiah has come and that I am him because the gospel will go out to the poor and the captives and people will be liberated, freed, fed, healed of their afflictions. The permanent jubilee has arrived. So now we've seen why Jesus comes, and maybe we understand why Jesus didn't heal every single person and feed every single person. It's because he came to bring in a spiritual, eternal jubilee. But let's take a look for a minute at how he's going to do that, and this is where you and I come in, and this is what makes you a servant, and this is the kind of servant you're called to be. It's this word. You ready? There's all different kinds of servants. You are an ambassador. You are an ambassador if you call on the name of Christ. That's your role. Think of all the, the implications of that. Let's take a look. Flip over to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. This is a great story. As Jesus passed, uh, this is uh, page 1375 of your RSB. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, that's why I like the story, sitting at the tax booth, okay? Matthew was a tax collector, okay? He was not a popular guy. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, this is in Matthew's house, behold, what happened? Controversy. Many tax collectors and sinners, those were people, by the way, who, who refused to follow, who didn't follow the law. Okay, so they were sinners. Uh, tax collectors and sinners came and re- were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is to say, he didn't just come in and sort of make a statement and then leave. He came into the house, he relaxed, he kicked back, he laid down and ate with them, and they spent time together, okay? Just think of the person in your neighborhood or someone you know that has a really bad reputation, and then imagine this politician or, or some famous person walking in the house with a, a bunch of them. What, 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 you know, how quick is, you know, some tabloid there, Right? This is what happened. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said this, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He did two beautiful things right there. He said, first, let me show you who God identifies with. And second, let me remind you, you're not so righteous. Your definition of righteousness is totally corrupt because you don't identify with these people. Jesus lays down the gauntlet. He says, the way you'll know that I am the Messiah is because of whom I identify with. And then he says, I have not come for the well, the religious. I have come for the unwell, the sick. And that's everyone. And if you want to be with me, you need to be with me when I'm with them. You don't need to become one like one of them, but you need to be with me. And that's where you and I come in. We'll close with this. A little bit farther along in that chapter, Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. What I want you to see as I read this, and I want you to really think about this, this is the heart of Jesus. Think of you as Jesus, okay? Now, you're not going to be able to do exactly some of the things he's getting ready, I'm getting ready to describe here. But I want you to think about how you walk through life and how you see people and who you don't see and who I don't see. And here's what it says. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, now this is everybody, the crowds, rich, poor, everybody, he had compassion for them. This is the God of the universe. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That is you. Every association you have, this is not about everybody in this room selling everything and putting on a white robe and going around and being crazy prophets. In fact, it's the opposite of that. This is about you rethinking and re-envisioning. Remember what I said when God falls into your life and becomes real? He rearranges the furniture. 
Well, this is how he rearranges it. He rearranges it around the people in your life. Every association you have, is it, is it a, how are you restoring shalom in that situation? Maybe you own a business. Maybe your business is just, it's something that you run honestly. It's something that you run with an open hand. It's something through which you demonstrate generosity. It's something through which you model the gospel to your employees and you give people jobs. Guess what? That's shalom. Those are the kinds of things that we're called to do. So what I want to leave you with is some ways I see this happen at Rio, happening right now. Somebody said to me, man, you know, Matt, you, uh, you need to tell us stuff that goes on and, and things that happen. Let me tell you how I see the, uh, the restoration of Shalom, shalom the, 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 uh, the work of Shalom happening here, okay? This, this carpet. Imagine this carpet has holes in it. Imagine this carpet is God's Shalom. And in this carpet, there's frays and tears and burns and holes. Well, Christian service is walking through life looking for those things and then re-knitting them so that they're beautiful again. And so that's how I see, let me tell you some ways I see this happen. This happens when a husband calls me, and, and by the way, some of you are going to know who you are, and some of you I have not mentioned because there's far too many for me to tell, but here's some examples. A husband calls me looking for counsel for him and his wife because he knows that the arguing and the distance are broken threads. He knows it's his responsibility to bring shalom into his marriage, that he needs to love his wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that guy, he he understands shalom. Another person of means calls me after hearing that somebody in our church got their car stolen. This happened a few weeks ago. Somebody in our church who uh, doesn't have a lot of means got their car stolen and didn't really have a, it was 20 years old to begin with. So they were sort of, oh, well, I guess we'll just have one car. And I get a phone call from someone who finds out and says, that person needs a car. Why? Because there's something wrong with that. The threads are torn. There's something broken there. And I want to put the threads back together in that person's life. So, you know, we did, we didn't just go buy them a car. We helped them deal with some debt that, 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 that caused them to be able to, uh, uh, uh um, responsibly manage getting their own car. And that guy helped think through that. That's, that's shalom. He's restoring the tapestry within the context of the church. Another person, an attorney, hears of a woman being taken advantage of in a divorce because she can't afford representation. So he steps up and does it for free. Hole in the tapestry, burn threads, puts them back together. This is the gospel. That same woman, been surrounded by other people in the church, she came to Christ here. We'll be baptizing her soon. She's got a home and a job and legal representation and loving community because of people in this church who understand shalom and what it means to serve Christ. And she is, a, she is saved. She was not and now she is. A woman finds broken threads in her own life through sexual abuse. And after finding herself healed in Christ, she begins a ministry to others who are broken by sexual abuse. That's shalom. If she had ended with, oh, now I feel better, that's not shalom. Last one. Or another one. A group of, uh, de- of people, developers, architects, builders, uh, they hear about homeless families and they determine to create a transitional housing project for them that Rio can can adopt and, and, and provide loving community in. That's shalom. That's guys looking at the bigger picture. Now we're not in the house. We're not in the church walls. We're outside. That's shalom. Last one. 
a South African Christian living in America using his farming skills in Haiti to bring renewal to the world. Because he sees that he has gifts in farming that can bring about not only physical but spiritual and emotional renewal to spiritually, emotionally, physically starving people. That's shalom. And so here's the deal. What I'm saying is, that's what I want all of you to do. That's what God wants me to do. Every single one of you, if you call yourself a believer, that's what it means to serve. You are ambassadors of Christ. Healthy, biblical, uniquely Christian service is being attentive to the holes in the tapestry, the things broken physically, spiritually, socially, economically, physically in people's lives, and applying your gifts and your resources to their restoration. All with the heart and humility and patience and persistence of Christ. There's no one in your life that shouldn't be on your radar. That's the point. So find your thing and do it. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is very simple. It's that you would open our eyes as your ambassadors. That as you say in in 2 Corinthians, that you would make your case through us that you would bring reconciliation to people in our lives through us. You would, re- you would reconcile them to you, to each other. You'd fix their brokenness through us because we are the workers and the harvest is great. So open our eyes, Father. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.